0: And I'm going to begin by asking a question, and it's going to raise an issue that's going to be hard for some of us, and so I think appropriate for the service as it has developed today. Um, I think we're in step with the Holy Spirit. But I'm going to ask a question that's going to be hard for some to hear. Matter of fact, because it's going to question a behavior that perhaps many of us have engaged in and believe probably very deeply in. And I want you to know from the beginning, before I even ask the question, I'm not questioning the behavior. But I do think that Peter needs to help us to better understand what it is we're doing when we do this thing. Are you sufficiently ready? Okay, here's the question. Have you ever prayed for another person's salvation? I certainly have. I think many of us have. The question I want to ask this morning as we begin is, why do we do that? Why do we do that? I mean, the Church of the Nazarene, of which we are a part here, is a denomination in the Wesleyan-Arminian tradition. And for some of you, that might be the first time you've ever heard that language. For others of you, this is sort of uh, commonplace language. But part of what it means to be in that tradition is that we believe the Scriptures teach that human beings are graced a free will by God. In other words, in our tradition, we believe that God does not decide in advance who will be saved and who will be condemned. And we don't believe that God influences people to such an extent that they have no choice but to follow Him. We believe that what God wills and what God labors through His grace to provide individuals is the capacity to choose otherwise when it comes to a decision of faith. So that's who we are. So I'll ask it again. Why would people who believe in free will ask God to save a person who is presently exercising her free will in walking away from God? And even more, I'll become even more personal as I do, if the person we've been praying for does repent of her sins and follow Jesus at some point... Why would we say that a decision of her free will was an answer to our prayers? I mean, if we didn't pray, would God have cooperated less in making that person aware of His love for Him or of the price He paid to reconcile Him to Himself? Would God be less concerned with that, less interested, less out there? Do we really believe that our prayers had something to do with the decision of her free will? And if they did, then is her will really free? Or is this just another kind of predestination? We reject predestination by God, but we accept predestination by prayer? Now, I'm not questioning whether we should pray for people to be saved. Not questioning it. But we need to think about it. I want to submit this morning that for those of us who truly believe in free will, it makes little to no sense to pray for a person's personal decision to follow Jesus. And it makes even less sense to call a decision to follow Jesus an answer to prayer. But many of us do it. Nonetheless, many of us do it every day. Matter of fact, I do it many times a day. In fact, I think I would argue that the longer we walk with God, And the more transformed by the love of God we become, the stronger the impulse to pray for the lost becomes. I think the Apostle Peter is going to help us understand why we have this instinct as Christians, and how we need to understand it. I think it's an instinct of holiness. you sufficiently uncomfortable? Good. You might listen. Two weeks ago... We began a three-part sermon series entitled Embracing Priesthood. And we'll complete that series today. Now, it's actually a mini-series and a larger series we are doing in First Peter. But Embracing Priesthood is where we are. And two weeks ago, I explained that Peter's language of priesthood suggests that as the Levites and the priests of ancient Israel were scattered amongst the tribes of Israel with no territory, no tribal inheritance of their own, so we... The church have been scattered among the nations of the earth to serve as priests of God among them. That seems Peter's language. I maintain that part of our of embracing our identity as priests is embracing that we Christians are a dispersed people among the nations of the earth, and we have to resist the impulse to create nations and kingdoms and fiefdoms. It's not God's intention for us. And it's a high calling to be God's priest, and it's quite a responsibility before Him. But last week we also celebrated that all of God's people are priests. That that is actually good news. Not only are we a dispersed people, but we are a diverse people. And our diversity in the kingdom of God is unprecedented in the history of the world. And one of the single greatest gifts God has given to us on this side of eternity. Irrespective of our race, or our place in society, or our gender, we all come to the same table. We've all been given the same mission. We are all priests of God for the nations. The walls of hostility that have divided nations and social classes and gender throughout human history have been overcome in Jesus. We are one in Christ, to use Paul's language. In the language of Peter, we are all priests of God. As priests of God, we are a dispersed people and we are a diverse people. And today we'll conclude our mini-series with our third and final point of the series. We are an interceding people. We are an interceding people. If you have access to a Bible, you're not already there. I'll invite you to turn with me to the New Testament epistle of First Peter. We're in chapter 2. We've been studying verses 4 through 10, and I'm going to read the entire passage again today. First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4 way towards the end of your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, and I'm reading from the NIV. As you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We've been concluding there throughout the series. What is the church? Who are the people of God supposed to be? What are the roles and responsibilities that God has given His people in the world? What does it mean to be the people of God, the body of Jesus, citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Not only has Peter suggested that we are a dispersed people, and that we are a diverse people, but He's also reminded us that we are an interceding people. Look again at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, And the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now we could go and talk for a long time about what the language of living stones really means. And theologians are somewhat divided as to how far we should take that language. But what seems abundantly clear is that God is constructing something out of living people today in the kingdom of heaven that in the old covenant was built out of stone and wood and inanimate objects. And the cornerstone, the foundation stone of this new building is Jesus Himself. And those who place their faith in Jesus, those who follow Jesus, are likened to living stones which are built upon the foundation stone into a building. And according to Peter, God builds these stones together into a spiritual house to be for the purpose of being a holy priesthood. It's really hard to deny that this language... Some some will deny that the language doesn't really imply the temple. But it's really hard to deny that it does. It definitely seems to imply the temple in the First Testament has become in the kingdom of God a living temple made up of followers of Jesus. The people of God, we've already been talking about them as a priesthood. But Peter wants us to know that we are built into a spiritual house to be a priesthood. And that forces us to ask the question, what is implied in the temple? Who are we? The temple in ancient Israel was the heart of worship of God for one primary reason. In the innermost sanctum of that temple, in the place called the Most Holy Place, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, that was the one place that God had promised to make his presence manifest. God was present in the temple in a way that he wasn't present anywhere else. At least, it was exceptional in some way. And so God's people came to that temple to make sacrifices to commemorate the acts of God in history, and to celebrate the goodness of God together. We are this temple. And so God's people are built together into a building where God's presence dwells, the Holy Spirit of God. And it's important to notice That when that language is used, it's used corporately. It's not used individually. Let me see if I can explain what I mean. During my early years in youth ministry, I was leading uh, camps originally, and uh, I, I came across a kid who had been very scrawny the last time I'd seen him. I mean, thin as a rail, not a stitch of muscle on him and that was He was maybe 12 or 13 and then i met him again when i was leading that camp when i when he was about 17 years old and i'm telling you he must have put on 30 pounds of muscle from the time he was 12 to the time he was 17 i mean i didn't even recognize him when he walked up to me i didn't know who he was and i had been friends with him and uh so i you know i i asked him i remember saying wow i hardly recognize you you've been working out much and I'll always remember his, his reply, not because it's the only time I've ever heard it, but because of the way he said it. He said, got to take care of the temple. And he puffed out his chest. <laughs> now, I knew exactly what he meant, and I knew what he was referring to, but I didn't agree with what he was saying, so I did what I do when that happens. I pretended I didn't know what was going on. And so I said, the temple? Yeah. And he flexed his muscles. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I've got to take care of it. Now, not everybody probably goes to the extremes that he did. I mean, he must have worked out a lot. But it's pretty common in the church to hear the language of temple of the Holy Spirit used in that way. Isn't it? That we, ourselves, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Most of that correlates with Paul's language in 1 Corinthians in a couple chapters there, chapter 3 and chapter 6. But both for Paul and for Peter, the language of temple of the Holy Spirit is not individualistic. The writers of Scripture don't teach that we are each a temple of the Holy Spirit. The metaphor is corporate. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We together are being built into a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood. Perhaps the language in Matthew of Jesus is reflective where two or three are gathered together there I am in their midst. Of course, in that context, it was about deciding um, a proper interpretation of the Scriptures, but I think the application goes wider than that. The people of the kingdom of heaven, which has been inaugurated by Jesus, are dispersed throughout the earth in local congregations of believers to be built into living temples in every nation, in every community on earth. To be priests according to Peter, who makes sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Now, there's a lot there, and we could get bogged down in the mechanics of the language, and I really don't want to do that. But the picture that Peter seems to have been drawing seems fairly straightforward. Wherever Christians are, the Word and the presence of God is in their midst. And so everywhere Christians gather together, the presence of God is manifest there. It's one of the great inventions, I think, innovations, uh, remembrances of the Protestant Reformation, that prior, a lot of the worship of God was done with the priest back to the congregation, as though God was somewhere out there and we were all this way. But when the Protestants turned the whole thing around, they did it because the presence of God is in our midst, not somewhere out there. And so we look at each other, right? When we worship. And one of the responsibilities of Christians, according to Peter, like the priests of old, is to make sacrifices to God. Now, we have to be very clear what we're not saying there, what I don't think Peter could be saying. But what I do want to recognize is that the people of Israel did not make sacrifices to God on their own. They were guided by the priests, and it was the priests who actually made the sacrifices. The priests stood between God and the people of Israel as mediators, as intercessors. And there were many kinds of sacrifices in the liturgies of ancient Israel. Some of them were for sin, certainly. And the writers of the New Testament have argued that Jesus as our high priest has made the final and ultimate sacrifice for sin on behalf of the people. Jesus is the high priest who sacrificed himself for the sins of the world. And I'd like to say more about that, but that would get us off track even more than I always let us get off track, so I'm not going to do that. But I bring it all up, to observe that for Peter, the sacrifices he envisioned the people of God making couldn't have been in relationship to sin, I don't think, because the New Testament is uniform, that Jesus performs that sacrifice in a final and ultimate way. But perhaps what we're not as aware of, at least if you haven't read Leviticus recently, is that there were sacrifices in the First Testament that had nothing whatsoever to do with sin. Grain offerings, for instance, were made to give God thanks for a good harvest. Fellowship offerings were made as a way of thanking God for the gift of the animal and the ability to eat it. And so once the proper portions of the animal were burned on the altar and the other proper portions were given to the priest, the remainder of the animal was eaten by the family as a fellowship offering. And so the point is that priests and their sacrifices help the people of Israel to worship God appropriately. It's one of their tasks. Now... This language in Peter is very clear, right? That we're being built into a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood, making sacrifices pleasing to God through Jesus Christ. That seems straightforward enough. But every commentary I read was insistent. And I read a lot of them. You know me. Some of you know me. I read a lot of commentaries. And all of them were insistent that these sacrifices the church is making to God through Jesus are on their own behalves. We're making sacrifices for ourselves, whatever they are. Sacrifices of praise, sacrifices of thanks. But Peter has said that we are priests offering sacrifices. And in ancient Israel, the priests did not make sacrifices on their own behalves. They made sacrifices on behalf of the people of Israel. So how did Peter see all that coming together? And what in the world is he trying to say to these communities of Asia Minor? Remember... Peter was writing to communities of Christians who were facing persecution. We don't know how, what the extent of the suffering was, we don't know exactly the time period, but we know because of Peter's language that they were being persecuted. And I believe Peter was reminding them of the implications of Jesus' teaching, that the people of God love their enemies, and they pray for those who persecute them. In fact, Peter may have been providing a foundational reason that the people of God Need to pray for those who persecute them. We are priests. We are those who mediate the word and presence of God to the world. And we are those who intercede to God on behalf of the world. We are an interceding people. Now, I haven't defined intercede yet. Here it is. To intercede is to speak on someone's behalf. And it can be done for a variety of reasons. Intercessors can be needed because a person is unable to speak for themselves or unqualified to speak for themselves or perhaps even unwilling to speak for themselves. We speak to God on behalf of those who do not recognize God in Jesus. We offer sacrifices on their behalves, not for sin, of course. Jesus does that. But we keep them in the presence of God. I read a book some years ago I'm hesitant with this illustration because this is a book I do not want you ever to read. (laughs) If I could put it on a blacklist, I would. And I was warned early on in my preaching career that you should never use an illustration that will invite something in through the back door that you're trying to keep out of the front. And I'm sort of doing that here because this is not a book I like. Matter of fact, when I first read it, I recommended to the professor who assigned it that they never assign it again. She didn't listen to me, but that's another story. Nonetheless, I, I, it's the part of me that always wants to give credit where credit is due. And there is an insight that I received from that book that I have to give credit to the author for. And his name is Ronald Rollheiser, and the book was called The Holy Longing. Rolheiser argued in that text that so long as the world is loved by the church and connected to the church in prayer and forgiveness, the world remains connected with God. Now, Rollheiser went on to argue that a person could actually be saved and forgiven through that connection without a personal relationship with Jesus, and that drove me crazy. It's the reason I told the professor at NTS that they should not have that book read again. They still read it, but that's fine. I did get an insight from it. But his insight that our love, our prayer, our forgiveness keeps the world connected with God seems powerful and very consistent with Peter's language here in 1 Peter, in my opinion bringing this together with what it means to be priest, dispersed amongst the nations of the earth, called from every nation and social class and gender, and tasked with interceding for the world. I'll share another conversation. And this one comes from online. I was interacting in an online discussion group with an individual who was having great doubts about the doctrine of the Trinity. Horrible time wrestling with that doctrine, that God is three in one. And he, became, he had become, at that point, at least he said, so perplexed by that doctrine that he confessed that, in the discussion group that he couldn't confess the creeds of the church anymore. just couldn't do it because he didn't believe it. And in response, another person in the group chimed in, and I wish that I thought to say something like this, or even had the conceptuality, but this blew me away what this person said. It's one of the more powerful comments I've read or heard in the church. He said, "'It's okay, brother.'" We'll confess it for you until you're ready. We'll confess it for you until you're ready. Is that amazing to you? It's amazing to me. I sat there horribly convicted at my computer. And that is, I believe, how Peter was asking us to understand our role in God's mission in the world. The world has rejected Jesus. If you're still open to 1 Peter, go back to the language and watch how it progresses. The world has rejected Jesus. The stone that God has chosen to be the foundation stone for the kingdom of God is a stone that the world thought to be unworthy or unsuitable to serve as a foundation stone. They discarded it as less than adequate. We know it to be precious. We know it to be the only adequate foundation stone in existence, but they've not recognized it. And so they stumble over Jesus. The world does not see Jesus as we see Him. When they observe Jesus, they see something else. Maybe a good person, or a a good teacher, a good ethical teacher or a brave revolutionary, or a prophet, or a charlatan, or a liar, or a lunatic, who knows what they see. But when they look at Jesus, when they encounter Him in the Gospels, when they see Him in us, they don't see what we see. They don't see Jesus as the incarnation of God Himself, as the only and prime demonstration of what it looks like to be a human, fully made in the image of God the way God intended us. They don't see Jesus as the foundation of a new order, breaking into reality that one day will fill the whole of the cosmos. They don't see Jesus as all of that. But we do. They won't confess it. But we can confess it for them. We can thank God for His blessings on our communities and contexts on their behalves. We can pray to God for them for their illnesses, for their sufferings, for their hardships, for their healing, and even for their forgiveness. We must confess for them in deep hope that one day they will confess for themselves. Now, we can't ensure their eternal life. God will require faith of them just as He has required faith of us. But we can sing praises to God on their behalves, and we can intercede for them as long as they are in need of priests. When one of the world puts her faith in Jesus, she no longer needs a priest, an intercede, an intercessor, because Jesus becomes her intercessor. He is the only mediator she will ever need. She becomes a priest herself. But until then, we bring the world before God. And I think this is the heart of Peter's understanding of the church. And I think it's why we feel that impulse. And why I would say if we haven't felt it, we need to feel the impulse to pray for the lost. We must pray for those who persecute us. And for those who reject Jesus. This is who we are in the world. And so this is what we must do. Our prayers and our love, they won't cause anyone to be saved. But our prayers, like the sacrifices of old, will keep the loss before God. The decision to follow Jesus is one each person makes. And I do want us to be very careful that we don't take credit for something that really is about the grace of God and the faith of another person by claiming that our prayers caused it. That's arrogant. But we do deserve mention for keeping that person in the presence of God through our intercession. Now, I know some may question. Some of you are theological, right? Isn't God everywhere? This seems a little weird to talk about God in one place and not in another. I mean, does He really need us? My response is that if God is everywhere today, then He has always been everywhere, even in the First Testament. But He was still present in a unique way in the temple. And so I would argue that Peter insists He is still present in a unique way where the people of God gather together. Others may question, then, why, does, why would God need mediators? I mean, isn't He connected with everyone, irrespective of faith? I mean, isn't Jesus the only mediator between God and humans? And my response would be, yes, I agree with that. Jesus is the only mediator between God and humans. But the Scriptures are also clear that the world lives separated from God, and they intentionally hold God off. They don't want relationship with Him. And God has asked the church to intercede for those who are refusing and rejecting Him. He's asked us to intercede for those who refuse to embrace Jesus' intercession for them. Maybe now, at the end of the series, as it begins to conclude, the challenges that I've put before us as a congregation over the last three weeks will begin to make more sense. In week one, I challenged us to seek one unbelieving person or one unbelieving family to whom we could minister over this next year. I hope you're praying about that. In week two, I challenged us to war against anything in our community that would attempt to rebuild the walls of hostility that have divided races and nations and social classes and genders throughout the history of the world as we seek to recognize in all we do and in all we say that we are one in Christ and that we are all priests. And now in our final week of this mini-series, I would challenge us to come to worship each week from here and until the time Jesus returns. Not only for ourselves, but for the world. When we worship together each week, we don't simply bring ourselves before God. We bring our families, our communities, our neighborhoods, and even our country before God, into the presence of God. On a week that one of us doesn't worship together, those unbelieving people who are somehow connected to that person don't come before God that week either, at least not into his presence directly. We worship God because He's invited us to worship Him through Jesus. There are reasons for us to come for ourselves. We worship God because we recognize Him in His handiwork in the world. We worship God because we long to live in His presence and in His kingdom. We worship God because we need to continue in Christ's likeness, And part of that is the need to encourage one another in this journey of Jesus in the world. But we also worship God as priests interceding for the world. And each week we bring those we love and with whom we are connected into the presence of a God they may want little or nothing to do with. The way the priests brought the Israelites. Will you embrace your priesthood in Jesus? For those who know the reference, we are the rocks crying out in their stead. They don't know what we know. We'll worship for them until they can worship for themselves. So my question to you this morning is this. Who are you worshiping for today? For whom do you bring praises to God? For whom will you make confession of sin? For whom do you hear the Word of God preached? For whom do you pray? And for whom do you receive the blessing of God today? Will you come and worship for them until they can worship for themselves? I think that's the challenge of Peter. And as the people in his day were being persecuted, Peter wanted to remind them that they were the priests of the world. The world was trying to crucify their only intercessors, in a way. The very presence of God in their midst. He reminded them, because we are priests, we must pray for those who persecute us. We must love our enemies. We must bring those who do not know God into the presence of God in our worship and speak for them. We must confess for them until they can confess for themselves. Each week I hope that you will pray and that you will remain connected with those who do not know Jesus. And when you come here, you'll come for you as I come for me. We have needs and God invites us to bring those needs into His presence. But we also bring the world here. Will you worship for them as well? Let's pray.